Good evening. Okay. The title for this series, as you probably know, is What the Buddha Untaught. And what I want to emphasize by this, this title is that the effort of the Buddha was not so much to teach us new thing, to pass on specific information to us, but to offer us pointers, suggestions on how can we unlearn all the stuff that gets in our way. How can we dismantle the conditioning that has kept us in the dark for all these times, in a relative dark, of course, so that uh, we can finally see things as they are. Today's talk, during today's talk, I will examine two topics. It, it's a two-part talk. The first part examines, examines our obsession with the accumulation of knowledge. How to get rid of that obsession. The second part refers very specifically to one subject, namely permanence. And again, how can we unlearn this assumption that we make that the things that surround us are permanent? Tomorrow's talk will be about unlearning clinging, and Sunday's talk is going to be about unlearning me. So, let's start with the first part of today's talk, which could be labeled Unlearning the Pursuit of Knowledge. I, myself, have found it pretty hard to stop this habit of accumulating knowledge, understanding, uh, conceptual exploration of things. All sorts, all sorts, in all areas. Remember, when my daughter was a pre-teenager, a teenager, my youngest daughter, actually, and I was a single parent then, I just couldn't understand anything. And then I, I tried to be so logical about it. I remember I'd write down on a piece of paper how, how these activities of this beautiful girl could make sense. They didn't. And they didn't have to make sense, of course. I didn't have to fit in a scheme. But it took me a long time to learn that. Because after all, isn't it neat when when all that all that haphazard stuff that comes our way seems to fit 
in one scheme. The behavior of the teenage daughter seems to fit. Hey, I got it. I understand it. It's not understandable. But at least we fool ourselves. And then, there are, of course, some, some packages of this knowledge, understanding, that comes to, come to us through social agreement. Certainly, the sense of I am different from you. <laughs> the distinction between self and other. We don't even question that. The, the difference between birth and death. I mean, the two polar opposites, right? We never question that. Ah, so there's common agreement on certain topics, almost universal. There, there is disagreement on others. For instance, nowadays in this country there's a lot of debate, uh, politically motivated, it's true, about when does life start? And there's no way of knowing, but uh, there, there are those who would like to adhere to one scheme or the other. So uh, sometimes uh, there are clashes of fundamentalists fundamentalists who say abortion is a crime or you know life starts at this time or that time and, and on both sides in fact and, and there's, there's no way this can be settled by reasoning what, what we do is we agree on a certain body of understanding Nowadays, put it more plainly, that um, a physicist, let me see if I can find the piece of paper, a physicist called Sir Arthur Eddington, he said this in 1934, he's an Englishman, it is a good rule not to put too much confidence in the observational results. This is a scientist, right, who relies on observations of physicists. He says, it's a good rule not to put too much confidence in the observational results until they have been confirmed by theory. Perfectly honest. Perfectly honest. In fact, this uh, particular quote was posted on the door separating two labs in the Pasteur Institute where I spent some time. And, and the groups that were working there on one side of the door, uh, François Jacob, um, a couple of years later got the Nobel Prize precisely for adhering to this kind of way of looking at things. It's, it can be very helpful to success in science. But it is very limiting. You only learn what you already knew. Occasionally in science, 
which is to be my discipline, by the way, that's why I talk about science. It's horrifying to find that you put Jose Rice's PhD on that. <laughs> it's got nothing to do with me, but there you are, you know. But it's true, I had a PhD. Um, in, in science, then there's the orthodoxy, and then here and there, there are great, important, significant scientific revolutions where the orthodoxy breaks down because it was too rigid. You know what? These revolutions open up the field for one year, five years, or whatever. Quick enough, a new orthodoxy come in, comes in, and everything is again common agreement. So uh, there isn't really much freedom from schemes, even in science, which is supposed to be so. so the art of free inquiry. In fact, I would say from Mr. Bush down or up, whichever way you want to see it, we are all tempted by certainty. Is there another way? Yes, of course, there is another way. It is possible to tackle reality with a fresh mind. And this is what the Buddha taught. I just remember a Zen story, and I, I, I really lost track of the actual quote for this. If any of you have heard this story, please help me find a, the source of it. It's a story of uh, a young man who goes to, he's looking for a teacher, and he, into, he goes to, to this very famous Zen teacher, and uh, has an interview with him, and starts asking him all kinds of questions about doctrine, and the knowledge of the Zen. And the teacher doesn't say a word while he's listening to this young man asking more and more questions he pours him a cup of tea so he's pouring the tea keeps pouring the tea and the tea overflows a cup and spills a lot of the place wait, wait, the young man says what are you doing? I'm doing what he's asking me to do you have your mind full of, of ideas. You want me to pour some more ideas into it. <laughs> doesn't work. We have to keep our mind, our cup, in some way. Find a way of keeping it free, receptive, ready to receive. And who put this very well as a, um, a mystic, a Spanish mystic from the 16th century called St. John of the Cross. Here's a precious quote from St. John of the Cross and I can't resist doing it first in Spanish. 
Para venir a lo que no sabes, has de ir por donde no sabes. In English. In order to arrive at what you do not know, you must go by a way which you do not know. How do we find this way which we do not know? Here's where the Buddha comes in. And what he offers is the practice, basically the practice. And the unteaching that goes with the practice. Here's what he says in the Kalakrama Sutta. Let me find it. Oops. He says, Tathagata, that means a Buddha, does not conceive of a visible thing apart from sight. Does not conceive of an unseen. He does not conceive of a thing worth seeing. He does not conceive about a seer. See, it's just the sight. No superstructure of conceiving around it. And he goes on to apply this to other areas, or sense perceptions. He says, he, the, the Buddha, does not conceive of an audible thing as apart from hearing. He does not conceive of an unheard. He does not conceive of a thing worth hearing. He does not conceive about here. This is what I was referring earlier when I was, while you were sitting, and I said, let's not uh, create a whole explanation around the sound. Just stay with the sound. And, and then again, about cognizing. Well, other senses, first of all. He says, he does not conceive of a thing to be sensed as apart from sensation, whether it's touch, smell, taste. He does not conceive of an unsensed. He does not conceive of a thing worth sensing. He does not conceive about one who senses. And then he goes on to the cognition, that is, a connection between the sensing capacity and the mind. He does not conceive of a cognizable thing as apart from cognition. He does not conceive of an uncognized. He does not conceive of a thing worth cognizing. He does not conceive about one who cognizes. And so, how is this practice of cognition without conceiving?
who has put it very beautiful in my sense is Don Pablo Neruda, a Chilean poet. Who, by the way, he was a, a closet Buddhist, you know. He didn't, he didn't, he, he must have known, you see. As a young man, he went uh, to Burma. That's a different name now, but you know what I'm talking about. To Rangoon as a clerk or something like that, a low job in the Chilean embassy in Burma. And he got embedded, imbibed, imbibed that culture, obviously. Anyway, I will spare you the Spanish this time. I'll just read it in English. Poetry is a poem. And I'll just read some segments of it. And it was at that age, poetry arrived in search of me. I didn't know. I didn't know where it came from, from winter or a river. I don't know how or when. No, there were not voices. There were not words, nor silence. But from a street, I was summoned. And he says, further down. And I wrote the first faint line. Faint, without substance. Pure folly. Pure wisdom. Of somebody who knows nothing. And suddenly I saw the heavens and fasten and open. Pure wisdom of somebody who knows nothing. And from that, the heavens opened up. So that's kind of an introduction to this series. What it's like to learn by being open. Learn by being ready to receive the poetry that summons him from a street somewhere. Not looking for anything in particular. That's really what the Buddha was after. Now let me get a little more concrete on a more narrow area, namely permanence. Second part of this talk. Unlearning permanence. Let me start with a, an anecdote, an experience of myself, almost to the day 60 years ago, when I entered the University of Buenos Aires as a freshman. Oh, we were so ambitious, we wanted to learn everything. And I entered 
the School of Chemistry. And, um, you know, we're going to learn sort of classical physics and basic chemistry. And, and some of us got together and said, you know, it's, it's a shame. I mean, with quantum physics and all these new things in physics, then, then when they were even newer than, newer than now, to have to study all the old stuff. And we were fortunate that there were some very brilliant people in Buenos Aires at that time. One of them was a, um, a man brought from Oxford, a physicist, quantum physicist called Simon Altman. And Simon agreed to give us a seminar. So a bunch of us got together. And I have to admit, I don't remember hardly anything about that course, that seminar course, except for one item that really impressed me and I'll never forget. He said to a handful of us who were sitting there in the room, look out the window, he said. Do you see that tree? Okay. Now, look the other way. Is the tree still there? Yeah, of course, right? He said, if you are a quantum physicist, the tree is not there. And, and of course, there's a whole barrage of mathematics around this. It's not a, a, an isolated observation or, or, or discovery. Discovery is that when you're working at the subatomic sub level, particle physics, which obey the rules of quantum physics, not of classical physics, then you cannot assume that anything is there unless you're looking at it. In fact, you almost have to assume that it's not there unless you're looking at it. About that time, there was in Switzerland uh, a very important psychologist called Jean Piaget, who was doing studies. In fact, he used his own children, strangely enough to do these studies, and which have been corroborated by many other people, like himself with other children, but still basic observations were with his children. And Jean Piaget discovered that children are not born with a sense of the continuity of objects. They acquire this sense between, say, 6 and 12 months of age. Before that, say, if I have this stick in my hand, for instance, and it, an infant sees me putting it back here, and then I get the stick out the other way, 
the infant has no idea that it's the same stick. There's no continuity there. It's the stick disappeared, and it, the stick appeared. It's not beautiful. It's a magic world. And guess what? As, as Jean Piaget himself was amazed to discover, that's exactly what quantum physicists claim. So, to be a quantum physicist, you have to go back to the magic world of, say, six months of age. You get the point, right? This is exactly what the Buddha has been teaching. To make no assumptions about the continuity of things. Only quantum physicists make this very restrictive to just subatomic physics. And the Buddha says, just take a moment and, and just in the seeing, see just the seeing. I mean, go back to the Kalakrama Sutta. A Tathagata does not conceive of a visible thing apart from sight. There you are. Like the quantum physicist, like the child. Profound unlearning. Profound unlearning. It, it can totally alter our experience of the world when we really allow this to sink and of course, puts an end of suffering. And I hope I can illustrate this more clearly as the talk progresses and the days go by. It's a practice that allows us to see deeply into this. In two ways. The first way the practice can offer us the direct experience of our addiction to stability. As we sit, don't we want things to be in a certain way? Hmm? We resent the sounds from the street or a ticking of a clock, or whatever. Or, which certainly in that, the part of the country where I live, upstate New York, we resent the lawnmower when it turns on. Ruins our meditation, whatever. We, we have a, a set idea how things should be. 
and her, her things should stay like that. Doesn't matter which way. We are addicted. We are addicted. And and there is a, a lot of being on the lookout for anything that's amiss in our practice. That shouldn't be there. That headache of me shouldn't be there. It's just a, a sensation. That's all there it is. But we decide that the practice should be in a certain way. It's, it's as if the mind had a, a, a panel, like the car, have a, a panel with lights, and these lights, red lights, turn on when certain things that we are, don't like occur, come our way. So it's, it's very important to examine this addiction, not to castigate ourselves for having it. Of course, what's the point? On the contrary, learn to understand ourselves by, by seeing very clearly, oh yes, there I go again, demanding that things be in a certain fixed, preconceived way and that they stay like that. The other side of the practice are the opportunities to have insights into impermanence. At times, those glimpses of impermanence can be very dramatic. A few years ago, when I was doing the three-month retreat at IMS. Somewhere in the middle of it, uh, it was as if the curtain went up on an extraordinary show. Suddenly, everything visible in the room started flickering, the lights flickering. It was like a strobe, strobe light show, you know. So that all my experience, visual experience, was intermittent. Slowly, sounds began to also sound like that, like in, in bundles. And eventually, later on, bodily sensations also had that sense. Even the breath had this discontinuity, inherent discontinuity in it. When I, slowly as I recovered from the shock of that discovery, 
thoughts. First, something is wrong with me. But soon enough I understood that I was really seeing things exactly as I was seeing them. I remember then, or later, later perhaps, I remember experience as a child going to uh, spend the summers from Buenos Aires, where I used to live as a child, to Punta del Este, that's in Uruguay, across the river. Now, at that time, Uruguay had a more primitive systems of communications, etc. The telephones, you had to turn a handle to talk over the phone and to get the attention of the operator. It was quite weird. And the electrical system was also on a different cycle. You know, electrical system here alternates 60 times, is it a second? 60 times a second. Uh, in other words, the polarity, you may or may not know it, the polarity, positive, negative, changes very, very quickly. And in Uruguay, uh, also was true, but it was slower. So every time we went to Montevideo, or to Punta del Este, to places I visited, all the lights started flickering. Because I wasn't used to that. And then, in, in a couple of days, I immediately solidified that experience. Here, too, we didn't notice any flickering, but it obviously is happening. And I think there's more of that with fluorescent light. Sometimes you catch it. Um, so, the important thing here is A, that the mind automatically stabilizes the experience and turns the impermanent into permanent. The, the changing into steady. Why? Because we need the reassurance of steadiness. We want to be surrounded by a world that is stable and solid. And secondly, the practice can give you an opportunity to unlearn that. Now, I'm not saying that you need to have this experience. I, I wasn't looking for that. I, didn't, I, I was shocked first to discover that. And, and pleased to understand what it meant. But it's, it's not a necessary experience. I haven't had it since. It's not that we, you, you must see the flickering lights. <laughs> it's whatever, whatever the mind-body is ready to open up to. And other times the mind opens up to other unlearnings. It's the fundamental unlearnings that we have to discover. Not so important how we experience the light or the uh, breath or the muscle tone or the sounds. 
whatever comes. The important thing is to to be able to to receive experience with a fresh mind, as fresh as possible, as unhampered by previous learning, by previous conditions, as possible. And you'll be surprised. Uh, you begin to discover things that are not in your agenda. See, the stability of light is in my agenda. So, okay, it's not very important. But there are other things that are very important. And we, we sort of impose on the world. As long as we insist in upholding our individual or and collective agenda, we are in trouble. We will suffer. Let it go, and we're free. Let's sit for a couple of minutes, please. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.